This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mighty God, we serve. The words to that song are so incredibly powerful. I hope they resonate with you the way they resonate with me. When we talk about God being mighty and we talk about who he is to us, we talk about how mighty his mission is, his word is. That's all we have. That's what we hold on to. That's what we bring with us. So when you have a message from God, let me ask you, if you have to go share that message with people who don't necessarily want to hear it, what do you do? How are you inclined to feel? What does it mean? It's easy. Listen, it's really easy to go share a message that you know people want to hear. It's really easy to go into a crowd of people who already hold the same values, who already have the same commitment that you have. And so to go in and share that, people are waiting with open arms to hear that. But what do we do when we go into a time or we go into an environment or we come amongst people who actually don't want to hear what it is that you're you're sharing? They may not want to hear about this mighty God because the message from this mighty God is one that is discordant with a message that means much more to them. So what do we do? What are we called to do when we're sent off? to share a message, to embody a message, to live out a message that people no longer, or maybe not at all, maybe have never wanted to hear. This is where we're finding ourselves as we have this one-off sermon here. We've just completed our sermon series in the book of John, and we felt it necessary to walk through a little bit of what does it mean? What has God called his church, his people to do with a message that sometimes people don't want to hear. We're going to spend some time in uh, 2 Timothy 4. I want us to think about what's happening here. In 2 Timothy, first of all, Paul is writing to his, one of his protégés, this young uh, person in the ministry that Paul has uh, mentored, he's discipled, he's poured into, and he's put him in a position of authority. He's seen him as this pastor. Some would look at, look at him as almost a bishop of several house churches uh, in this area. And there, Timothy is this young man who is preaching the gospel and living out this, this new idea of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow God. And Paul is giving him some warnings. He's letting him know, listen, when you go into this area, as you grow as a pastor, as you grow as a Christian, there's going to come a time where it's not going to be easy to share this message. And Paul is going to tell us why people struggle with hearing this message. And he's hopefully going to share with us today why we might struggle, why some of us, why some of you might struggle with hearing the totality of the heart of God. So let's read 2 Timothy 4, just the first five verses, and then we'll dig in a little deeper. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a passage of scripture. If you've been in church and you've been uh, within uh, church circles for any period of time, you've heard this passage brought up. Most times we get to this spot where it says there's going to come a time in the end times, in those latter days when people are not going to want to hear. They're going to bring up preachers that are going to tell them what they want to hear. Itching ears, as the King James puts it. And so many times uh, we look at that, and I know in some of the traditions I've been in, it just means, hey, there's going to come a time where people aren't believing the right things. There's going to come a time where people aren't holding to these doctrinal issues uh, that we believe to be essential. That's a whole other conversation for what doctrinal issues are essential versus not. More often than not, we have a long list of issues we think are doctrinally uh, vital And so then we start to divide because of that list, right? And so this becomes the excuse we get to use to say, well, you disagree with me on this issue. We aren't on the same page here. And because I think I'm right, you're one of those people that likely is wanting to get, you have itching ears. You're just going to find somebody that's going to agree with what you believe and not what I'm believing. But this goes much deeper than that. And ultimately what we're going to see is uh, this idea of sound doctrine is one we need to really drill down into. What does it mean to have sound doctrine? What does it mean for you and I to hold to a doctrine that we say is fundamentally encompassing everything that God has called us to be, everything that God has called us to embody? And I'm going to submit this to you. Any doctrine, any doctrine that upholds the word of God while divorced from the heart of God, is unsound doctrine. Any doctrine that does not equip you to love God more and to love your neighbor more is unsound doctrine. It doesn't matter what you believe about God if it doesn't impact what you believe about your neighbor, specifically what you believe you should do to love your neighbor. It does not matter how much scripture you know if the scripture doesn't empower you to show that love to your neighbor specifically neighbors that are different from you, that look different from you, that live different from you, that love differently from you, all of those things. If you are not equipped to love them more holistically, your doctrine is unsound. That's very different from the way we've often thought. We could say, hey, as long as I think the right thing, as long as I can profess and confess the right thing, then I am soundly in the right doctrinal camp. I am in the right bucket. I have it together. But what we're going to see here is that if your sound doctrine doesn't make you more resoundingly loving, you don't have sound doctrine. 
So let's take a look here as you see what, uh, what Paul is saying, because here Timothy is. Uh, here he is in this, uh, this place where he's pastoring folks and he's young. And we see earlier, Paul has said, don't let people despise you because of your youth, because uh, Timothy is, is a young man and he's got several people who are older than him. People who likely have been uh, uh, following God in their own ways for years and years and years. And they probably have lots of questions about what he does and what he teaches. And here Paul is giving his final instructions to Timothy. He's giving these last uh, parting, this last charge. And he says, I charge you before God in Christ Jesus. He's giving you this authority here. Jesus is the one that's going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, he says, preach the word. Now we cannot, we would not do this text service if we don't ask the question, why is Paul even telling Timothy to preach the word? What is he warning him against? Paul has already identified that. He's actually elucidated several ways in which people are going to turn away from the truth. He's done it a chapter earlier. Let's look at chapter three, the first five verses. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power, avoid these people. That last phrase has got to be hard for folks because a lot of times we're like, cancel culture is bad, except there's a version of cancel culture you might see in scripture. That's another topic for a different day. But here, what you're seeing here, and this is really important, what you see in chapter four is just a reiteration of what Paul has said in chapter three. The reason why that's important is because if you think this call to believe in sound doctrine and preach sound doctrine and make sure that your doctrine is sound, if you think that's all about what you believe about the Reformation, what you believe about the five points of tulip, what you believe about what it means to believe the right things about God, if you think it begins and ends there, you don't have sound doctrine. Because what Paul is saying, the context in which he's speaking, the backdrop of these words he's given to Timothy in chapter four is basically a reflection of what he talked about in chapter three. In other words, if you're preaching the word, then hopefully you're undoing all of the issues that Paul warned would happen in the last days. Now, whenever he says last days, ultimately, we can always think, well, what does that mean? Is he talking about, you know, hundreds of years down the road, thousands of years down the road? If, if you grew up reading the Left Behind books like I did, you're waiting for Nikolai Carpathia to show up on the scene and that's going to be the time where the last days show up. That's not what this is. We don't know exactly when last days began. What we do know is it was pretty soon after Jesus departed because ultimately Paul is talking to Timothy, warning him about what will happen in the last days. So we likely have been living in that for the last 2000 years. And what he says is very quickly after Jesus has departed, very quickly after the church starts, people are already getting to a place where they're not believing and practicing what they should. 
They're not believing what it means to love their neighbor well. What stops us from loving our neighbor and loving God well? The way we love ourselves. The idea of loving ourselves and enlarging ourselves at the expense of others. You see, when you look back at chapter three, think again about how the way that we love ourselves impacts the way we love others. There's a healthy way to do that and a very unhealthy way to do this. Paul says in those last days, people are going to become lovers of self. Lovers of self. When you love something, you are devoted to it. When you love something, you worship it. When you love something, you will give up other things in order to have it. You will ignore other things in order to have it. And so when you love yourself, and this is more in a very unhealthy way, when you love something, you will commit yourself to it. You can't commit yourself to everything. So something's got to fall by the wayside. There's a way in which we love ourselves to the extent that other people fall by the wayside. And Paul is saying in those last days, people are going to love themselves and they're going to love themselves so much. They're going to love what it means to enlarge themselves, which means they're going to be lovers of money. And because they love themselves, they love to be able to tell others just how much they love themselves and tell others how much you ought to be loving them, which makes them boastful which makes them proud. And then when you want to remind people how much better you are than other people, you become what? Demeaning. Disobedient to parents. That's a whole other conversation. But some people think that the ways in which parents have taught, hopefully good parents and godly parents are teaching kids to be outwardly focused, teaching children to love people and love their neighbor the way Christ has called them to. And so to love yourself more than your neighbor is to disobey, hopefully, the godly parental instruction that's been given to you. Ungrateful unholy. See, this, these kinds of language, this language that Paul uses has little to do with how tightly you hold to theological spe uh, specifics, right? Make sure that you have the finer points of theology here, because if you don't have those finer points of theology, you must not be doctrinally sound. Now, this isn't to say that issues of theology are not important. But And I used to be a person that would be like, I just want to make sure that I run everything through the litmus test of whether or not certain theological positions are right to know if it's doctrinally sound. But ultimately, if those finer points of theological distinction don't create finer points and on-ramps to loving the neighbor well, all that doctrine is still unsound because it's not about what I think and what I believe. It's about what it makes me do, what it moves me to do, who it moves me to become. If you don't have that, you are not doctrinally sound. So Paul is already telling them, he's saying, look, listen, the biggest enemy we're going to have, the biggest enemy will be the inner me, my love for myself, the worship of myself, the self-worship that is going to draw me inward and away from God and away from my neighbor. That's sound doctrine. Look, Jesus said this already. <laughs> Jesus was asked, Jesus, this is a whole bunch of commandments. We got upwards of 500 some odd commandments in the law. What's the most important one? If you had to rank them, how would you rank them? And he said, you know, the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one is like it. By the way, when he says the second one is like it in the Greek, that really means the second one is equivalent to the first one. So, so there really is no distinction here. The greatest commandment is to do both of these things. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Later, Jesus even drilled down even deeper into that and said, now I give you a new commandment. Love your neighbor the way I've loved you. Love others the way I've loved you. So ultimately, loving God and loving others, that is our primary command. Everything else we believe, everything else we do, everything else we profess, all of those things should be done in order to empower us to keep that greatest commandment. So to not do that is to be doctrinally unsound. To not do that is to be completely adverse or completely against who God is. This is what Paul is talking about here. So, so why then? This is the answer to why. Why does Paul respond to, to, to uh, Timothy here in chapter four by saying, preach the word? Because there's something about who God is and who he, was, he, he has revealed himself to be and how he has revealed his heart to us through his word, through Jesus, through the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus. The ways that he has revealed himself to us, those are the things that we need to be reminding each other of. That's why he says, be, go and preach the word and then be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? In order to be ready in season, you know, he's using agrarian farming language. You know, there's a time to, to sow. You know, there's a time to reap. No one expects to reap a harvest when you're planting seeds, right? No one expects that to happen. And, and in the same way, no one expects when it's time to reap the harvest in the fall, no one expects you to be planting seed at the same time. But here, what Paul is saying is you need to be ready in season and out of season because you've got to be ready to give these words when it is not popular to do so, when it is not expected to do so. Why? Because people are going to be so caught up in loving themselves and they want to be around other people that helps them love themselves. So when you start preaching a message that forces people to get out of themselves, it's going to feel like it's out of season for them. And it's going to be really frustrating because it's going to be very exposing. We've often said exposure feels like assault. So when you become exposed, when someone comes and says, hey, by the way, what you're doing right now is rooted in a lot of self-love, dangerous, toxic self-love. We're not talking about, you know, the idea of just having the same view of yourself that God does. That's a healthy love, right? But this goes beyond that. There's a, a, a very unhealthy, toxic self-love. And when that happens, we start completely overlooking each other. And so he says, you need to be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. When you do it in season, people expect it, people appreciate it, people like it. When you do it out of season, people get upset. People start to call you out. People start to even potentially persecute you. People start to uh, take issue with the things that you're saying, even though it might be straight from God's heart. And they start to take issue and they start to question and they start to question your authority, which they did to Timothy. Well, who are you to say this to me? I've been walking with God longer than you. I've done more studying than you. Again, because that exposure feels like assault. And when, when you feel assaulted, you fight back. Paul is warning Timothy and preparing Timothy to let him know this is not going to be easy. Preaching the word can feel like a battle because many times you're bringing the truth of God to ears that don't want to hear it. 
Ears would much rather hear things that are going to empower them to love themselves better, not to empower them to love others better. So when he has to, when he says this, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct and encourage. Now, why is he saying this? He's just reiterating something else he said in chapter three. If you remember in chapter three, the very end of chapter three, there's a passage of scripture. You know, we always love John three sixteen. I love second Timothy three sixteen because this is one of those passages. All scripture is inspired by God. And what do we use it for? And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, and for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Paul is basically saying is, you're going to struggle, everybody's going to struggle with loving themselves. We were born into this world loving ourselves. It's one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't have to give that command, right? And they say, you know, what's the greatest command? He says, love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. He presupposes that you know how to love yourself. He presupposes that you know how to orient yourself in such a way where you get kind of the best of what's around. You set yourself up to make sure you get what's best coming to you, right? That's just that you look at a baby. When babies come into this world, they know exactly what it is to get what they want, get what they need, cry until they get what they want. They don't care if it's three in the morning and you got to get out of bed and bring them food. They don't care about that because what's most important, I'm talking out of experience, what's most important is the fact that they're hungry and they need food. You know how to love yourself. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you know how to love others as well as you love yourself? And so here, Paul is telling Timothy, doing the work of the ministry, what makes ministry hard is that we're all so selfish. What makes ministry hard is that we have a hard time orienting others above ourselves. What makes ministry harder then is that once I realize that or once I'm trying to orient things for myself, I want to align myself, myself with other people who are going to make it easier for me to love myself. So if I can uh, align myself with a group of people, whether it's a community, whether it's a church, whether it's a political platform, I'm going to align myself there because what they're saying helps me feel better about myself, helps me love myself better, might even help me enlarge my standing. And so I'd rather do that than to give that up or to uh, set that aside in order to love others better. See, this is what I believe it means when he says eventually people are going to uh, gather around preachers that are going to uh, bring them or say to them what itching ears want to hear. What do we want to hear? I want to hear a message that helps me love myself better. That's what I want to hear. So on a spiritual level, I, I don't want to necessarily hear that I'm not just intrinsically good. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that at my core, I'm good. And I just need somebody to help bring the good out of me. The reason why that's dangerous is when it's time for someone to say to you, by the way, you might have some things internally that are really not good and it's affecting your neighbor, like implicit bias. I might have a way that I naturally think about people that I shouldn't. I might have some things that I believe about certain people groups that I shouldn't. I might have some things that I believe about women that I shouldn't. I might have uh, beliefs about people that are uh, differently abled than me that I shouldn't. 
I don't want anybody to tell me that I have that internally because I want to believe I'm good enough. I want to believe that I'm intrinsically good. For you to assert that that might be true in me is to make me have a different view of myself. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I pay tithes for. That's not what I give offerings for. That's not what I voted for. And so when you start to tell me something about me that I don't want to believe, I'm angry. I don't want to hear that. And so whether it's on a personal sin issue or whether it's on certain structural issues, we don't want to believe that. I don't want to hear that. And that's why Paul says you're going to have people, a lot of people that are going to gather around people that are going to help them love themselves more. Right. Help them uh, believe things that suits their own passions, things that they believe strongly, fervently. When you're passionate about something, there's there's little to nothing you wouldn't give up to acquire what it is you're passionate about. And so uh, Paul is looking at, uh, he knows the lay of the land. He's been dealing with these same kinds of folks because he knows us. This is who we are. This isn't just people 2000 years ago. This is us in 2020. This is who we are. We love ourselves too much. We love each other far less. We love God even less than that. That's the challenge that we have as Christians. This Christian life is constantly a battle against ourselves. How? Do I work in such a way so that my love for God and my neighbor can uh, win out over my love for myself? That's what it is to be. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This competition of love that's always there. How do I get to a spot where my love for God and my neighbor wins out over my love for myself? Well, if I if it's not ordered right, if that if my loves are disordered, then I will find people that are going to tell me what I want to hear. I will find people that are going to help me love myself more. And I will turn away from truth in order to listen to myths that make me start to believe better about myself. And I don't want to believe anything otherwise. That's what I, so, so when, when Paul says this to Timothy, this shouldn't be new to us. We should be able to see this and identify it in our own story. We should be able to see this and identify it even within our own nation, what it means to turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, when you think through what Paul is getting ready to say here, I really want to say something that might be really hard for us to hear, but listen to what Paul says. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Now, that's a huge shot against what he said earlier in chapter three, right? People are going to struggle with uh, being self-controlled. He said without self-control, unloving, irreconcilable, which is another big word there. So people are going to lack self-control. And I love myself and I want everything for myself. I'll cast all caution to the wind and go get it. Even if it means I have to, you know, there are some people that when they're really passionate, they do things that are out of their character. Where did that come from? That's normally not in me. I can't believe I said that thing. I can't believe I did that thing. When I love myself so much, I will cast off all restraint. I will do things that seem out of character because I'm out of control. So the first thing Paul tells Timothy, uh, practice self-control. Exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. And here's the big, here's the big kicker. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. When you think about this word evangelist, 
This is such a big word because ultimately it's a Greek combination word of, and it's a transliteration now. We kind of use it, this, this, the first half of that is EU. It's been translated as EV, but it starts out EU, which just means good, right? Something that is good. And then this next word, right, this word that we see when we think about the idea of a good messenger, Right, the idea of a, the, where we get the word angel, this angelos word, it's, it's simply meant a messenger. They actually we use the word angelos as, as a way to describe pastors, right? Messengers, people that bring. And before Christianity, it simply was people who were just messengers that were bringing messages back and forth from nation to nation, right? So, so when you've got you angelos, you have evangel, you have one who is bringing a message, one who is bringing a good message, right? So when we talk about what it means to be an evangelist, it's one who brings a good message, a necessary message, right? A good message isn't one that always feels good, but it's good for you. A good message isn't something that always feels fuzzy, that makes you want to jump up and down and, and, and rejoice every time, but it's good for you. And so he says, do the work of speaking truth, good truth, truth sometimes that cuts, Truth sometimes that people don't want to hear. Do the work of an, of, of an evangelist. Here's what he doesn't say. Do the work of an evangelical. Now, why do we need to say that? There's a fundamental difference between what it means to be a New Testament evangelist and a 2020 evangelical. And it's been that case throughout the history of this nation. However we have defined evangelical, many times people have propped up being an evangelical as what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But history shows us that those things have, at many times, been diametrically opposed. Back in 1832, Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, former slave, while he was a slave, his master, Thomas Auld, converted to Christianity, August of 1832. And Frederick Douglass had many thoughts that I believe many of us would have if we were in that situation. Think about it. You've been living under this place of forced servitude, brutal environment, fear at every front. Not sure if the family that you started gets to be the family that you end with. Not sure if after you've had children with this woman, if you might not be sold off to go make children and more slaves on another plantation. Living under this idea that like, I don't know if my life here will always be this way. Will I ever see freedom? Will my children ever see freedom? So, so here Frederick Douglass sees his master become a Christian. And he has great hope. He hopes that, that maybe his master would emancipate his slaves. And if not emancipate his slaves, he wrote in the third of his, of his biographies, he, he wrote several. In his third biography, he wrote this. He said, I had hoped that uh, it might make him more kind and more humane. But instead, he wrote, if it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and more hateful in all of his ways. He writes about how his master would, would publicly practice piety in front of everyone. Does that sound familiar? Show everyone this act of worship. Pray in front of everyone. Attend revivals, very popular revivals during that time. 
Entertain preachers and let them stay in his home. Open his home to them while using his faith as a license to inflict pain, to inflict suffering on his slaves. Here's what he says in his biography. He says, I have seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cow's king upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drip. And in justification of this bloody deed, he would quote this passage of scripture. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Now, Douglas wasn't attacking Christianity per se. He even wanted to make that point clear in his biography. He was attacking the way, and this is what we should be attacking, the way in which Christianity had been used to enlarge certain people while being weaponized against the most defenseless. Christianity should never be that. It should never be associated with that. The work of an evangelist would be to be anti that, right? Because the work of the evangelist is to preach the word that will undo all of the self-loving that we get stuck in, all of the self-worshiping that we get stuck in. So one might think it was very logical for Douglas to assume when this man becomes a Christian, when he follows this biblical Christianity that we see, a Christianity that, again, what does Paul say? A Christianity that should be able to undo loving of self, loving of money. Why would I want to force people into servitude? Because I'm making really good money off free labor. It's no better form of a prosperity gospel than to think that I am entitled to make money off of free labor and then do it in the name of God. So, it makes good sense for a person like Frederick Douglass to go, now that he's a Christian, he's going to see a Christianity that seems to be rooted in mutual liberation and love for the neighbor. It just makes sense. If, if people used to do things because they loved money so much, now that they're a Christian, they won't do things because of love of money. They'll do it because of love of man and love of women, love of mankind, love of neighbor. So here... Here he is. He's like, okay, this is going to happen. And it doesn't happen. It actually somehow that version of Christianity allowed them to double down, allowed him to get to a place where he actually said, I'm going to use this newfound faith to even to be even harsher. I'm going to weaponize this faith against them. Use scripture against them so that I can enlarge myself and weaponize against the most defenseless. Douglas said, this is the widest possible difference between the slaveholding religion of this land and the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. It's been roughly 125 years since Douglas passed away. And yet, I think we would agree that the residue of that slaveholding religion, that version of evangelicalism back then, is very present within American evangelicalism right now. Last year, there was a survey done. 86% uh, of white evangelical Protestants and 70% of white mainline Protestants and Catholics said that the Confederate flag is more a symbol of Southern pride than of racism. 
Two out of three white Christians overall said that the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than a part of a broader pattern of mistreatment. Six out of 10 white Christians disagreed with the statement that generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class. The Public Religion Research Institute, this nonpartisan polling and research organization, uh, they, 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 they put this out after tabulating tons of data, working through tons of uh, uh, information and polling and, and talking to people. The more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. Y'all, we've always had this struggle with, with using Christianity, whatever version we're using, to enlarge ourselves and insulate ourselves away or against having to love our neighbor because it costs us something. And if I love myself and I love my money and I love my power and I love my position, to give that up in the name of loving my neighbor feels like something's being robbed. It feels like something's being taken from me. It feels like something's being stolen from me. And in America, it feels un-American. This is false doctrine. This is not sound doctrine. The moment that I get to a place where I'm going, I, I feel like something's being taken from me. And so therefore, something must be wrong. As opposed to asking the question, should something be taken from me in order for me to love my neighbor well? Or maybe not taken from me. Should I be willing to give up something? in order for my neighbor to be well? Should I be willing to vote in such a way in order for my neighbor to be well, even if it means I might be giving up something in the process? Would that not be the more Christ-like way of thinking? Would that actually not satisfy what Paul says should happen when he, when he tells uh, Timothy, hey, you're gonna deal with people who love themselves. You're gonna deal with people who are caught up with their love of money. You know what love of money does? When you love money, the scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says money answereth all things, actually. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Pick an evil. Look at the history behind that evil. And you will find a group of people, albeit ever small or larger, who are uh, uh, standing to gain uh, a great advantage because of what that is. Financially, monetarily, or power, or influence. Whatever it is, look at what that is and see what that means. Whether it's slavery, whether it's women's suffrage, people, specifically men, specifically white men, worried about women having the ability to vote. Why? Because if women begin to vote for things that are part and parcel of their own interests, men will have to start to give something up. Oh, no, we can't do that. So you know what the church did? The church often would say, listen, men and women, now that women are getting the right to vote in 1920, now that they're getting the right to vote, we are trying to tell people specifically, this was even before they got the right, they would say it is unbiblical for women to have the right to vote. Why? Because men and women are supposed to be one. And if women have the right to vote, they might vote counter to what their husband is saying with their vote, which then would bring division. And since that's divisive, that can be of God. You see how we twist scripture in order to make sure people don't have just equal access to things we call rights? Because why? Because we stand to lose something. If women have the right to vote, 
then women then will be able to have the right to have the same types of access to to jobs, to labor, to the means of production, to be able to gain credit and, and getting finances. Well, if they gain certain things, then certain people, certain men won't. It's always been about who gets to have a piece of the pie. And if I want more of the pie, I have no problem keeping other people from having that. This is here in the text. This isn't just us making something up. This has always been the case. So if our gospel, if our doctrine does not empower us to care about these things, to care about issues, not just of our own personal relationship with God, but issues of making sure that other image bearers have equal access to the things that we claim we all are entitled to, then there's something lacking in our doctrine. I've had people send me messages before to go, you know, I just don't get why there's a need to talk about justice, specifically social justice, because when I hear that word, it just feels really bad. It feels really political and I don't really want to deal with politics. I just want to deal with the gospel. It's so interesting that we do this, that we somehow think, and, and the truth of the matter is that we don't have a problem with politics. It's just whether or not it's a political position that we disagree with, then it's politics and we don't want to hear it. But the truth of the matter is, when you think about what it means to care about people, and you think about what it means to not be a lover of self, that is very much tied to justice. It's very much tied to how other people are going to fare based on your self-love. All of the things that Paul brings up in chapter three, all of these things that he's warning, these harbingers of, 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 of self-worship, these harbingers of, of self-idolatry. What happens when you love self? We've already said it. There's an impact on someone else. It's not just individual. What happens when you love money? It's an impact on someone else. What happens when you're boastful? It's an impact on someone else. What happens when you're proud? It's an impact on someone else. When you're ungrateful, when you're unloving, this is where he said, when he says we are irreconcilable, this is what's dangerous. Your love for yourself can get you to a point where it almost seems impossible for you to be reconciled back to God's heart and then reconciled back to other image bearers. Some of these issues we're talking about right now, there are people in our church, people that I know even outside of our church, who are at a place where they're like, I'm looking at what holistic love looks like. I see in the scriptures this call to love my neighbor radically. And it might mean that I'm acknowledging some things that I need to give up. I'm acknowledging some things that I need to lay down in order to love my neighbor better. And for some reason, this desire to embody this thing, this, this calling that God calls us into, this desire to obey God is offensive to people who are close to me. Somehow my desire to love others is offensive to those who I once called friends, to those who are my family members. We've got folks who have been alienated from their families because they want to love more holistically because that's what Jesus calls us to. And ironically, the very people who might alienate, who claim to love Jesus, sadly, they're holding to a form of a false doctrine. They're more interested in being whatever this version of evangelicalism is. They want to be an evangelical more than they want to be an evangelist. That is unsound doctrine. And frankly, to not do what Jesus calls us to do, it's not just unsound, it's sin. 
many of us, many of you, while maybe in your heart of hearts believing that you're following God, could very well be in unrepentant sin. Because this call to love the neighbor well and stop loving ourselves so much, it feels so impossible to you. It feels so impossible to us. It feels so offensive to us. It feels like, well, think about this right now. This is how privileged we are as Americans, especially certain sections within America. So privileged that when there are tons, I mean, the large majority of experts in epidemiology, I don't care about what an OBGYN told you about COVID. I don't care about what a chiropractor told you about COVID. Talk to the people who study this. And what they've said is the best way to love your neighbor is to just put on a mask. And be distanced. And the large majority of evangelicals, what do they say? You're robbing me of my religious right. You're robbing me of my freedom as an American. You're taking something from me. I love myself too much. And what you're really saying is, I don't love you enough. Which in turn means, I don't love God enough. This is unsound. This is not the gospel. And you are in sin. So what do we do? I don't care what generation you pick out. I don't care what time in history you pick out. We are always going to struggle with this self-love and we're going to find people that help us love ourselves well to the point where we ignore others. And God's heart is grieved. This isn't just a, a one-off. This isn't just, oh, you know, that's just one real bad, one little problem that we've got to work on. God's heart is grieved. His nostrils are flaring. And you know what he's telling us? Get back to preaching the word. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean preach the finer points of theology on this point. It doesn't mean making sure that we understand uh, 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 what it means to, to understand atonement the right way. All those things are, are important. But ultimately, he's saying preach the gospel in such a way that it enlarges your love for me and enlarges your love for the neighbor. We should be learning the gospel on a level that breaks our heart when we see the ways we've not loved each other. You can't just learn the gospel and preach the gospel and dig into the gospel and swim into the gospel and just feel good all the time. There should be a part where you go, I am heartbroken because I realize just how little I've loved my neighbor well, just how little I've loved God. That's where we go. So Paul gives this hope. He says, preach the word. Preach the word. The word of God that is more than just words. The word of God that is more than just theology. The word of God that is married to the heart of God. A heart that says, I want to see you love others the way I've loved you. How did Jesus love us? He didn't say, I feel like you're robbing me of my right to live. No, I will not get on the cross. I feel like you're robbing me of bodily integrity. No, I will not allow you to shed my blood. He didn't say, no, I, I, you're robbing me of a good reputation. I will not allow you to spread these lies about me. He doesn't do that. He says, I love you enough to set aside the things that I have as rights because I'm God in the flesh and I have every right you can think of and many you've never thought of. I will set them all aside in order to show, demonstrate, and reconcile you, you irreconcilable one. I will reconcile you with my body, with my blood, with my life, with my death. And guess what? You are to love others in the same way. So Paul says, preach the word. Preach the word in season, when it's popular, 
when it's accepted, when people are not wanting to harm you, when people are not wanting to castigate you, when people are not wanting to ostracize you, when people are not wanting to demean you in the media, when people are not uh, wanting to, to defame you through social media. Do it in that season and then do it when it's not season. Do it out of season. Do it when it's not popular. Do it when you might actually lose something. Do it when you might struggle with your family. Do it when you might struggle with your friends. Do it when you might struggle in your neighborhood. Do it when you might struggle on, in, the, in the workplace. It might affect our jobs. It might affect our ability to do certain things. What does it mean to preach the word? It means I count the cost and I know what the cost is. When I have to do it out of season, it might be really hard. We've got folks in our church right now that are dealing with a very difficult season. You might be dealing with a very hard, horrendous, heartbreaking season. We are going into the holidays. This can be and is an incredibly lonely season because this version of evangelicalism has created, and not even just created, I'm gonna take that back. It hasn't created, it's exposed just how divided we've always been. And it's not just divided from each other. We have been divided from God. So what's the call? Preach the word. In season. Out of season. And what do we do? How do we preach the word? We do it by lovingly rebuking, correcting. Now, we're not called to be prideful about, I know love and you don't. Ultimately, we're called to do it with teaching and patience. So we take the word of God, married to the heart of God, and we lovingly rebuke and we lovingly correct, which means we lovingly accept rebuke. We lovingly accept correction with patience and with teaching. Because what Paul says, and at the end of verse six, and I haven't read it, but I'll read it as we close. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close. These are his last words. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Ultimately, the way we show that we love, we're getting ready to walk into Advent. We're looking at who Jesus is. We're uh, excited as we remember this idea that he came and why he came. And as we look ahead to the time when he will come again, it's one thing to say, I'm so excited that he came. I love the fact that he appeared. I love the fact that he's coming again. I love the fact that he saved me. I love the fact that he's ransomed me. But it's not something we just declare. It's something we demonstrate. And how do we demonstrate it? Through radical love. And we love our neighbor far more than we even love ourselves. We find ways to identify what does self-love and self-worship look like in me? What groups am I a part of that help me love myself more? What does it mean then to be a people that preaches the word, teaches the word, loves the word, and embodies the word? The only way that our doctrine is sound is when our doctrine empowers us to love people more than we love ourselves. That's how we show that we love God. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are mighty. And yet, in our own flesh, in our own nature, we will act like we are the mighty ones. We will act as if it is beneath us 
to have to give up things in order to mightily love others. We will act as if your love for us has not really changed us the way that we claim it has. And yet, God, you've called us to love one another. You've called us to preach the word in such a way that our love for ourselves becomes properly ordered. So, God, I pray that you will order our loves appropriately. We pray that you will, uh, dis any areas in our hearts where there are disordered loves, would you reorder them? We know that it might be, likely will be very uncomfortable. And it might, feel, uh, it might feel very difficult and we might even feel attacked. We might even feel threatened. And I just pray, Lord, that you will give us a heart of humility wherein we can be corrected, rebuked, wherein we can correct and rebuked with teaching and with patience. Not so that we can love ourselves better, but so that we can love each other better and more importantly, so that we can love you well. Father, we recognize this is your story. It is not ours. So I pray that we will not love in a way that says it's our story. Let us love in a way that proves that it is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final benediction, this final blessing from God. The ways in which he shows just how mighty he is. He shows just how much he loves us. And as you listen to these words, May you be empowered to love others in the ways that God loves you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.